is Hinter Tales. I'm Rachel Dunstan Muller with stories of curious people, places, and events from the margins of history. It's February 1944. The Second World War is raging all around the globe. That's when a 24-year-old American bomber pilot, Lieutenant Claire Klein, is shot down over occupied Holland. He manages to bail out and parachute safely to the ground, only to find himself in a field, staring down the barrel of a pistol held by an elderly uniformed German. From the field, Klein is marched to an interrogation center, and from there he's transported to Stalag Luft One, a prison camp for captured Allied airmen. Now, there are certainly far worse places to be a prisoner in 1944. Still, no one is going to mistake the camp for a resort. The men sleep in rough wooden barracks, in narrow bunks with straw-filled burlap sacks for mattresses. And for food? Well, rations have gotten pretty meager by this point in the war. The only thing keeping the men from starving are the Red Cross care packages still coming in. But far worse than any physical deprivation is the uncertainty these men have to live with, not knowing when the war will end or even if they'll survive to see the end of the war. Now, according to the Geneva Convention, captured officers aren't allowed to be used for labor, which is a good thing. It means that they can't be worked to death. But in practice, it also means that the prisoners have far too much time on their hands, and this results in a rather strange cocktail of constant heightened anxiety on the one hand and spirit-crushing boredom on the other. The prisoners find a number of ways to cope. They play bridge, they attempt to dig escape tunnels, they read and reread the same tattered paperbacks, Klein writes letters home to his wife and carves models of his B-24 airplane from any wood that he can get his hands on, bed slats, table legs, aid cartons, whatever he can scavenge. And so the days and the weeks and the months gradually go by. But then one afternoon early in the fall, Klein reaches his limit. What is the point of carving yet another model airplane? In disgust, he tosses his latest half-finished project to the ground and goes over to the barracks window. Please, Lord, he begs, help me find something constructive to do. Then he waits. There's no answer from the gray sky. And so he goes back to his bunk, feeling even more despondent than before. But then, just a few moments later, someone starts whistling Red Wing, an old folk tune. And Klein? Klein is instantly transported back to his childhood in rural Minnesota. When he closes his eyes, he is seven again listening to a fiddler play. 
Klein loved the violin as a child, so much so that an elderly uncle gave him one. Some of the old-timers took Klein under their wings, and it wasn't long before he was playing with them at house parties and barn dances. For a split second, Klein allows himself to imagine how wonderful it would be to have an actual violin here in the prison camp. But where would he get a violin? Maybe he could make one. It is a ridiculous idea. Klein understands this at once. He has done a little woodworking in the past, before the war, but he's never attempted anything as ambitious as a violin. He doesn't have the materials or the tools. He is an inmate of a prison camp. It's absolutely preposterous. And yet, even as he's dismissing the idea, he's caught by a voice in his head. You can do it. It's as if someone were challenging him. Now, Klein grew up on a farm during the Depression. He knows how to be resourceful. He's watched his father repair hopelessly broken equipment more times than he can count. And now, here in the barracks, his father's words come back to him. It is possible to make something out of nothing, Claire. All you've got to do is find a way. And there is always a way. Bed slats, Klein thinks now. That's where he can start. The bed slats in each bunk are four inches wide, three quarters of an inch thick, and thirty inches long. The perfect size. And a few won't be missed. He can carve them with the penknife that he's already managed to get from a guard in exchange for cigarettes from his Red Cross care packages. And so, just like that, Klein begins the impossible task. He improvises more tools from broken glass and ground-down kitchen knives. He enlists the help of his bunkmates to scrape off dried carpenter's glue from around the rungs of their chairs. He then grinds the dried glue into powder, mixes it with water, and heats it on a stove. And it works. He has glue. Gradually, against all odds, an actual violin begins to take shape. He bends thin, water-soaked wood and heats it over a stove to make the instrument's curved sides. He forms a long neck from several glued-together bed slats. He carves out two delicate F-shaped holes in the violin's belly, With more of his care-packaged cigarettes, he trades for varnish. Then he polishes the entire instrument with pumice and paraffin oil until it positively glows. Three months after Klein begins, it's finished. All except for strings and a bow. But Klein soon has those as well, in exchange for still more Red Cross cigarettes. And then the violin 
really is complete. But to actually play it, to draw the bow over the strings for the first time, well, that's something else again. For three months, Klein has spent every waking moment either working on the violin or figuring out how to meet the next challenge. It's given him hope, the sense of purpose that he so desperately needed. But now, now is the moment of truth. Will it be a croaking catastrophe or will it actually make music? Klein's hands tremble as he tucks the violin under his chin. But to his wonder, when he draws the bow across the strings, pure, resonant sound fills the air. Over the next few weeks, Klein is banished by his fellow prisoners to the latrine. The violin is in excellent form, but Klein, Klein has some work to do to regain his old skills. By Christmas Eve, he's ready. As his bunkmates slump around him, brooding over their distant homes, their faraway loved ones, Klein raises his bow and begins to play. The room falls silent at first. Then one by one, voices join the carol. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. In the midst of that transcendent moment, Klein hears another voice in another language blending with the others. Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht, alle schlaft, einsam wacht. An elderly white-haired guard stands in the shadows. His eyes wet with tears. Claire Klein and his fellow prisoners were liberated the following May. For the next year, his violin traveled all around the United States as part of an exhibition on POW life. More than four million Americans viewed Klein's violin during that tour, and it was played by many popular violinists along the way. Several of them commented on its unexpectedly fine workmanship. The violin eventually found its way back to a display cabinet in Klein's home, and it remained there 
until his son donated it to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. It's still taken out and played on special occasions, even to this day. As for Klein, he became a carpenter and a cabinet maker upon his return home, but music remained an essential part of his life. So perhaps it shouldn't come as a surprise that he was able to pass on his passion in a truly remarkable way. Klein's oldest son, a grandson, and a granddaughter all went on to play with major symphony orchestras. His son Roger played bass for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. His grandson Daniel plays cello for the Arkansas Symphony Orchestra. And his granddaughter, Jennifer Mondi, plays viola for the National Symphony Orchestra at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., Three direct descendants in major symphony orchestras. Not a bad legacy for a Minnesota farm boy. This episode of Hinter Tales was written, narrated, and produced by Rachel Dunstan Muller with music and sound effects by zapsplat.com. Learn more about my work at racheldunstonmuller.com. <laughs>